Welcome to the Islam and Liberty Podcast. If you enjoyed this show and would like to support us, visit islamandlibertynetwork.org. This episode, we have a recording of our 7th International Islam and Liberty Conference, the Islamic Case for Religious Freedom, held in Jakarta. Today, we have Waqas Ahmed. He is Assistant Professor at Faculty of Management Sciences, International Islamic University, Islamabad, Pakistan. He considers himself as a social scientist and interests in age-old elusive questions of why some nations are rich and others are poor. The complexity of the question requires insight not only from the economics, but also from psychology, sociology, politics, and history. He is part of a panel, Religious, Political, and Economic Freedom, Interrelationships, chaired by Rebecca Shah. His topic is Religious Freedom and Economic Development, a Conceptual and Empirical Review. I recommend looking at his presentation while listening to this podcast. It's on our website at islamilibertynetwork.org. Assalamualaikum. Thank you very much for the invitation to Islam and Liberty Network and other partners. Now, this is uh, the last uh, in this session, and I think uh, this makes sense because initially we look at uh, first a, 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 in a sense, empirical analysis, a particular analysis of uh, indices uh, related to religious freedom and uh, economic freedom. And then we look at uh, a case study of my home country, Pakistan, how uh, politics and democracy and these things are interconnected. Now here, it's a big task. Uh, it's hundreds of years of history and I only have hundreds of seconds. So I have to be very quick. So let's look at, uh, so basically these are the things that I'm going to try to cover very quickly. It's economic growth to just to give you a brief idea. And we, we can, of course, we are living through and benefiting from economic growth in the last couple of hundred of years. So we can easily appreciate what happened in the last uh, two to three hundred years economically. Then how that is connected with economic freedom and religious freedom. And then I'm going to share you some theoretical links. And uh, fortunately, we have someone sitting in the audience. I relied heavily. Shah, uh, Mr. Shah is here. So his paper, I'm going to present you your own paper in a sense. So, and then there is an empirical evidence, and finally, uh, there is a conclusion. Again, so a picture speaks a thousand words. So this is, you can see how the world has been stagnant for thousands of years since the agriculture revolution 10,000 10, years ago. And you can see something strange happened in somewhere 1800. And this is a kind of hockey stick. And you can see the countries. It's easily available online data. You can check out from one world, our, ourworldindata.org from where I have downloaded it. So you can see the countries, even if you forget the countries, if you just look at the global per, per capita GDP, uh, for those who are not from economics, just think of it, it's the global world divided by population. So, so this has increased tremendously. Now, what happened? Uh, there was great civilization even before that, Chinese, Islamic, and even other civilization, but this thing has not happened. This is something strange, interesting, and uh, so, and again, people are trying to answer this question right from Adam Smith, who is considered father of economics. So he tried, uh, he has written this Wealth of Nation in 1776. But again, in many of the economic problems, this is not a settled issue that why this thing happened, maybe hundreds and maybe thousands of PhDs has been written on this, books and everything, why it happened. 
in that particular place, in particular time, what is the role of different factor, which you briefly touched here. And even right now, just a couple of years ago, a Turkish-American, Darren Esomoglu, has written why nations fail. So it's, the question is still there. So it's not a, you know, settled, but there are, of course, many things on which economists agree. But again, it's a, such a complex issue that once you start thinking about this question, um, it, it's, it's, you know, it's a never-ending issue. So again, very quickly, some people think that it's a scientific revolution of Copernicus and Newton and other, because that opened up this idea of inquiry uh, that led to later on, like you can see improvement in technology, how that uh, basic scientific ideas are then translated into different kind of technology like steam engine and other, and that translated into this rapid growth. And some people make this argument of uh, cheap uh, energy sources like coal in England. And again, the question is why in England? Why not uh, in Germany? Why not uh, in Istanbul or uh, Turkey or any other areas? So these are just quickly some of the things. Again, I don't have time. One is financial innovation, the idea of company shares, limited liability. This is one, uh, you know, one explanation. Then there are, these are something technical in economics. We call them growth models, ex exogenous, endogenous. But uh, let's not go into that. And then finally, which is easy to understand for non-economists, is the idea of institution. Uh, Douglas North won the Nobel Prize for that. And later on, as I said, Esimoglu and Johnson has a comprehensive review of this area that how institutions played an important role in, the, in unleashing this economic growth. Then let's go beyond that. These are what traditionally what people thought, but now our connection is to connect it with the idea of religious freedom. Now, uh, before that, i like to highlight two works. One that is uh, mentioned in the opening, Martin McCloskey's Trilogy of Bourgeois Spirit. It's a three-volume three work. It's a fascinating idea of looking at where she negates all the things which I said in the last slide predominantly, that these are not the reasons for industrial revolution happened in somewhere in Northern Europe, primarily in England. Rather, her idea was that this is the change in ideas change in ideas of giving respect to the merchant class, the people who are tinkering and making money, the trading class. Historically, the, 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 you know, the intellectual and the artists, they always look down to this merchant class, the, the people who are working and tinkering and trying to make money. So her argument, which she, she presented in three volumes actually, that how that change equalization of the dignity. Now, when this class get dignity, this we can call them merchant class, she called it bourgeoisie, which is kind of middle class in a positive sense, she make this case that how that led to Thing. And the second important work is just recently also published by Joe uh, Mokhyar in 2016. It's the culture of economic growth. And culture, we know, uh, are values, preferences, capable of affecting behavior that are socially, but of course not genetically transmitted across generation. So culture is something which economists have now recently, uh, you know, they're looking at these uh, areas that how culture affect uh, these things. And in this uh, work, he talked about uh, the, uh, the period of 1500 to 1700, before the Industrial Revolution, how a republic of letters, what he called republic of letters, was created in Europe, where people started exchanging ideas in, in countries, although it was a political fragmentation in Europe, uh, little states, but people can can be prosecuted for ideas, but they can move or move to other states, and still they were exchanging these ideas through post, even postal services played an important role. And they their ideas were tested, 
debated and rather built on or sometimes rejected. So this idea of culture. Now let's come back to uh, religious freedom because this is again an idea. So that's why I try to connect it with how ideas play an important role in, uh, in, in doing that. So we already talked about uh, the Declaration of Human Rights, but again, um, we are, I'm not going into that. So let's look at how Shah and Gill has looked at this point of religious freedom. The freedom to engage in public as well private life on the basis of one religious conviction. And they add on top of that an economic point of view as well. When the cost of practicing religion increases, the cost of practicing any religion increases, that is a sign of uh, religious restriction and vice versa. When the cost of practicing decreases, that means religious freedom is increasing. Okay, again, this is again one shot from Pew Research Center. In the last 10 years, no, they have just published a 10-year survey. And in the last 10 years, unfortunately, you can see there that in most of the countries, what they have done, things have, you know, this uh, religious restriction and other things have increases. Uh, so this is recently published work you can check out on their website. So, and this is a summary of that is, uh, if I can just quickly summarize it, uh, the restriction on religion uh, on four areas, favoritism of particular religious group, harassment of religious group, journal law and restriction religious, and limit on religious activity. So these, these have, all of them has increased. And biggest increase is in certain part of Europe, uh, France, and in Northern Africa. Now let's uh, look at this. Uh, so this is uh, Gail and Finkel look at uh, the 90, 1% of the countries uh, provide assurance of religious freedom in their constitution, but 86% of the nations have at least one law, at least one law pertaining to uh, restrict the religious you know, activities. So these are what the links are. The first is, I think I briefly touched, is the idea. So if you allow the religious freedom, it creates an environment where the ideas uh, can flourish and exchange of ideas, any idea, but again, if you don't have rel uh, religious freedom, then many of the ideas were restricted. And there is a, and so this is one channel that Cha has identified that can lead to economic growth. And then you have uh, skill development. Uh, so many religious uh, organization and institution, they are doing many activities and those skills are created by religious um, you know, organization and institution, which can be translated into other areas of life, like organizational skills and managing events and accounting and even uh, different kind of services they're providing. And uh, uh, then you have uh, uh, charitable activities, uh, like we have one in Akhwat. It's like, it's religiously inspired. They're providing interest-free loans um, because it's religiously inspired and they have distributed literally billions of rupees and their turnover rate is very good. So this is just one idea that how a religious-inspired idea of providing interest-free loans can, uh, can also help these uh, things. Then you can see uh, migration. This is another important thing that people migrate where they feel that they have religious freedom. For example, countries like Canada and others, relatively their religious freedom is there and many people who are persecuted in other parts of the world and those who are smart with skill set, they are more likely to go to in those countries with the religious freedom and play their role in economic development. And then finally, if you add up them, there is bundled this idea of flourishing, how human life can flourish as a whole beyond even economic gains. That also required that. And liberty. And there are, again, there is a whole literature in economics called economic freedom. So again, but economic freedom is also linked with, uh, you know, religious freedom is also part of that. So if you have these, they are 
complementary, they reinforce each other. And finally, it's very important stability in many countries where there is a, uh, a lack of religious freedom, there is a high level of violence and, uh, uh, you know, so stability, which is a prereq for economic growth is also required. Uh, so finally, just uh, quickly look at some of these empirical evidences. One of the studies has just been showed uh, previously, but this is, uh, if you look at studies of, there is a study in 2005, Allen and Chase, where they looked at the cross-section variation of GDP and they uh, identified that the religious freedom has a positive relation with GDP per capita. This is based on empirical work looking at cross-sections of the world. And then this is corruption is a big issue in many developing countries. And if you look at the data, it's very simple, uh, you know, clear that, that regulation and restriction on religious activities lead to higher level of corruption. If we look at the top 10 most corrupt countries, eight of those 10 has a very high level of uh, religious. Uh, maybe there is a correlation only, but the point is this this does indicate something. Then North and Carter look at the implication of state religion. Now, this is a very interesting study that where in the countries where there is a state religion, uh, religion is imposed through the constitution, religious participation actually decreases. So this is strange. Instead of trying to increase the religion, so it has decreases. On the other hand, if there is a religious protection for you know people and religious freedom, Every decade of constitutional protection actually raised the religiosity by 1.2%. So it's contrary to uh, you know what we think that uh, even these restrictions can actually lead to uh, to the final. I think time is over, so I'm going directly to the last point. Okay, uh, the last point is I want to show that in Muslim countries uh, there are, if you can show uh, that Muslim countries there is, uh, uh, if you look at countries. Uh, in the in 2009 Pew Research, which I already shared, if you look at the countries, Muslim countries are 25% of the sample, but they are constitute 75% of the countries which most restricted law and policies towards religion. So on average, of course, there are restrictions on other countries as well, but Muslim countries have this thing more. Finally, there is. Uh, uh, this is a recent work just published in June by uh, Ahmad Khoury, a Turkish American, on authoritarianism under development in Muslim countries. His idea is that it's not that Islam is against, like, for example, Tamil Quran has this idea of great divergence that how Islamic law of inheritance and interest has led to this divergence between East and West. Uh, but he makes this uh, uh, more subtle argument that it's not per se Islamic, rather something happened in Islamic history, especially in middle of 11th century at the start of Siljuk Empire, that this idea that how the religions has been uh, and religious establishment and the authorities have co-opted. Otherwise, if you look at our traditional Islamic uh, history, like even uh, Fuqaha, like Imam Abu Hanifa and others, they try to disassociate themselves from the established, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, from, from the government, in other words. They don't want to be work as a government employee. But later on, this idea of Madaris, uh, Madaris have started there in 11th century, which what we call uh, Nazamiya, Madaris is uh, Nazamiya, where it spread across the world. And that led to a whole 
you know, a convergence of state apparatus and religious establishment. And that led to even more, uh, you know, restriction. And then they restrict the dissenting note within the tradition uh, and, of course, outside the tradition as well. So that is uh, all uh, on my side. So, um, and again, what is the solution? At least um, I, I cannot comment much on that, but at least assertive secularism is also not the solution. We can see the example of Turkey, Egypt, and Iran, uh, Shah of Iran, and other. So this is not possible. The top-down approach of suppressing these things and creating a kind of secularism which is artificial, top-down is not. So what I think Hayek says that we need a spontaneous order of bottom-up approach. So we need like these kind of events. We need to involve civil society and traditional scholars to engage on these ideas. And that, I think, can help us to slowly and gradually what economists call marginal. So we need a marginal revolution, not a quick one. It's a quickly, slow and steady. Maybe things can improve in Muslim countries. Thank you very much. I'm going to ask our speakers for five minutes to just expand a little on some key concepts. Of course, my colleague who talked a lot about Amit Kuru's work, who is a colleague of ours at the Religious Freedom Institute, I, I very much like that he did that. And I'd like him to talk a little bit more about the, that, that aspect. Okay. So just finally want to comment on this uh, Amit Kuru's work which is very interesting, it is uh, authoritarianism and underdevelopment in Muslim countries. Because this is the question that in general in Muslim countries, even when there is a procedural democracy, there is a tendencies of uh, authoritarianism, which are again not uh, only a Muslim phenomena, it are not shifting to India as well, but more or less it is like you can see. Now what are the reasons? So according to him, again, uh, this is a big question that the divergence of East and West uh, and why Muslim society is left behind economically, uh, like as I said, Tamar Quran has this argument that is based on Islamic laws of inheritance and interest. They are creating trouble for, uh, for these things. But here he makes this argument that because up till uh, mid of 11th century, um, it was uh, the religious establishment or the religious scholar used to work independently from the government influence. So they were supported by charitable institution and businesses and trust. So they can make their argument which are against the uh, you know, establish uh, government. And it is a creating a kind of a market for ideas. And that is creating an ideas market, which is, of course, uh, good for not only economic growth, but human flourishing. But then what happened in, uh, in the Sunni world, uh, initially at 11th century, and then it continues in some way or other up till now, that uh, government started funding and hiring these religious scholars, and they are going to work for them, and they establish this um, uh, system of madaris and we, which are funded by the government. Now again, uh, it's from an, a simple political economy point of view, when government is you know, supporting a particular group, uh, that means uh, there is a trade, there is an exchange of uh, you know, benefits. The government is drawing of legitimacy from that group and that group is getting exclusive right of you know, having an you know, exclusive space. And again, this goes against the idea of not only liberty, but again, it created um, uh, an environment which uh, uh, is stifling for creativity and innovation. And, uh, and that, of course, uh, subsequently translated into economic growth or underdevelopment. Okay, good morning, everybody. Yes. Thank you very much for this uh, wonderful presentation. My name is Amel Azuz, again. So my question is for uh, Dr. Waqas or for you, uh, Lady uh, Dr. Sheh, because um, 
I see that you intersect in many ideas with uh, Dr. Waqas. In, um, especially Waqas uh, mentioned beliefs, values, and preferences, how they are capable in affecting economic behavior, especially. And uh, this reminds me of uh, Max Weber's study, famous study, of the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. You remember all that in his study, there is this relationship between uh, the ethics of Protestantism and the emergence of the spirit of modern capitalism. Uh, for example, uh, the, use, the use of time wisely, he said, to serve and devote oneself to God, or the use of wealth rationally, and for things willed by God, and to fulfill the needs of an individual. My question is the following. Uh, in your study, Dr. Sheh, for example, uh, as I have understood, you are conducting a study in India to see this relationship between the uh, Muslim uh, uh, community. Can we say that, or could you, for example, deduce that there are other values that would encourage another economic model, not the individualistic, capitalistic one, rather? Because in Islam, there is much more focus on the, the group, the community, the collectivity, etc. much more solidarity, social solidarity? Or is there a mixture of this and that? Private initiative and, for example, the interest of the group, private interest and collective interest. Or do we really follow the same, um, uh, the same way as we, the findings in, uh, in Weber's? Okay. Yeah. So, oh yes. Uh... So let's start with, uh, as you highlighted, this idea of uh, religion. And this is very famous, uh, one of the famous studies in Protestant work ethics, where Weber argued that Protestants have, uh, like Northern Europe, has grown more than the Southern Europe. And one of the reasons he explained is, is the Protestant work ethics. And again, this is one. There are many other studies. Recently, I, I mentioned in the paper, there is another work which showed that it is may not be the work ethics. Rather, it's the, uh, it's the ability to read. Primarily after the printing press, the reading of Bible, or rather any written text, that led to what they call human uh, capital accumulation. Uh, and that can lead to, uh, you know, subsequently, of course, uh, transfer into economic growth in multiple channels. Now, the idea is that how Islam, particularly, um, I think there is no, you know, a single solution of maybe a collective solution or individualistic. People are using the inspiration from Islamic or any other religious ideas and based on many other factors, they are translating them into either the collective actions of some kind of social welfare as Kamali Sab has just highlighted or they are going into using into a personal individual initiative of rather trade and commerce or business. So the idea is that it's not both of them. So religion can, can be used, for example, this idea that um, Ms. Shah has highlighted, this idea of self-control. This is a big uh, studies, what they call behavioral public policy now, the idea that how these psychological factors affect the economic outcomes. So for example, the people who have the ability to self-control, they're able to manage the risk, save more for retirement, invest in education, and delay the gratification, which is maybe religious ideas can also inspire how to delay the gratification. And that can also help in, into the economic ways as well. My own work. So my own work is a very sensitive work because I do household surveys. And in my work, to answer your question about a, a, a Weberian equivalent in, in the sample, I, I sample all religions and 
Muslims are a significant part of my sample, both in Sri Lanka as well as in India. And one aspect, I found two things, but one I'll highlight, and that is zakat. So the, 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 the paying of zakat is a voluntary contribution. It does two things. First, if a person has a limited salary, say 5,000 or 10,000 rupees a month, and during the months of Ramzan or even uh, they, maybe 20,000, they then say they will give 1,000 rupees. That then controls, they, there's a sort of an involuntary, there's a voluntary controlling of their own consumption function that month. They know they have to give that money. Secondly, it's their commitment, it's their, it's a measure of religiosity, it's their commitment to the poor. So what both international studies have found is that zakat contributions dwarf other contributions for humanitarian relief. In fact, in 2015, in Indonesia, there was a decline in GDP, but not a decline in zakat contributions because of the religious compulsion. So in Islam, the, compul the, 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 uh, the religious obligation, the compulsion, the voluntary contribution, financial contribution is a wonderful way of not just uh, the person's own religious life is uh, being transformed by his or her own commitment to her religious faith, but it's also a, a contribution to the pooled resources which help. The second one is the in my study is, is the wearing of the veil. So there's an increase in the number of women in our sample who are wearing the headscarf. And uh, one might say that's a restriction, or, but in fact what we are finding is that women who are more likely to wear their headscarf are more likely to go out for work. In other words, they, are more, they feel more comfortable and are probably given permission, more likely to seek employment outside the home. Girls are more likely to go to college. That is among the very poor Dalit Muslims. So in a sense, religious behavior, religious beliefs have an impact and, uh, on, on an economic uh, behavior. And that's all we have for this episode. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a like or a comment wherever you like. It would really help us out. And if you want to explore more on the Muslim case for freedom, visit islamandlibertynetwork.org. You can also support us through a donation button on the site. Thank you for listening to this podcast.